Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Talons and Tea Leaves. Today we will be discussing Hermione's new attitude, why divination is looked down upon compared to other branches of magic, and what hippogriffs can teach us about respect. So the chapter begins with the first day of classes, and the trio has divination first thing in the morning, although somehow we also find out that Hermione also has two other classes scheduled for 9am. So the gang gets lost on their way trying to find their divination class, which apparently is in the North Tower, and they meet a painting knight named Sir Cadagan on the way, who is like a strange-looking knight on a pony, uh, who treats their goal of trying to get to class as a quest Mm -hmm. and sort of humorously leads them there, jumping through paintings. Once they get to the classroom, they meet Professor Trelawney, who begins to warn them that books will not help them much during divination class, and Hermione is not impressed by this. So they start the class by reading tea leaves. Um, Harry and Ron really have no idea what's going on, and they don't really seem interested in trying. Um, And Professor Trelawney takes a look at Harry's cup and gasps. She explains that what she sees is a grim, which is a large black dog-looking creature that is an omen of death. Most of the students know what this means and freak out, including Ron. Then they go to Transfiguration class, where McGonagall assures them that Professor Trelawney has predicted at least one student's death every year, and none of them have ever actually died. Um, So they shouldn't really worry. Um, She also demonstrates the Animagus transformation, because she herself is an Animagus. She transforms into her tabby cat form and then back to her human form. After lunch, they have their first Charismatical Creatures class, which is also Hagrid's first class as a professor of that subject. He introduces hippogriffs, which are half griffin, half horse, and he warns them, do not insult them, to bow and wait for the cue from the hippogriff to approach. So he asks for volunteers, and no one volunteers, so Harry decides, okay, I guess I'll go. So Harry goes first. And he's pretty scared, but uh, he manages to ride Buckbeak successfully, much to the uh, surprise of the class who thought that he was about to die based on his earlier predictions from divination. Right. So the rest of the class feels a little bit more confident. Everyone takes a turn with different hippogriffs. Malfoy goes to Buckbeak and insults him, which is what he was expressly told not to do, and then is injured by Buckbeak. So that's how class ends, and it's not looking great. Um, But later that night, the trio goes to visit Hagrid and console him, and they find him very drunk and very distraught, and he's convinced that he's about to be fired because his first class was such a disaster. They reassure him that they will back him up no matter what, and whatever Malfoy says, they'll make sure that he is supported and knows that he did the right thing. They help him sober up, and then when he does, Hagrid suddenly realizes they are out of the castle after dark and scolds them for doing that um, more than usual, especially because of the Dementors. So the first new character that we get introduced to in this chapter is Sir Cadogan. I pronounce it Sir Cadogan. I don't know. How do you pronounce it? I usually pronounce it Cadogan. 
But uh, I don't know. We can call it Cadogan, I guess. That's or fine. either either way, it's it's a strange name, and he's a strange character. I mean, he's some comic relief. He's kind of a a little knight on a fat pony, and just running around his painting, thinking that he's on a big quest. Um, and then somehow gets involved in the trio being lost and wants to help them find the North Tower. Um, it's funny. He is a silly character, and it gets us to see another um, portrait character kind of being, probably for the first time, being very active in uh, mm-hmm. part of the plot or the story. But I wonder why we think that Rowling included him, because he does become important later on in this book. Um, but he's not... You know, she could have done it in a different way. So I'm wondering why we think that this type of character was included at this point. Well, I can't answer that because I don't, I don't know. Um, but what I could think was that maybe it was just an attempt at humor. This is a pretty dark chapter, right? Um, and I think Rowling is pretty good at weaving levity in between, you know, the the really dark moments, as we've seen in previous um, books and this one as well. Um, and Kodagan is really a Don Quixote-esque character mm-hmm. to me because, you know, like Don Quixote, he's he wants to be a knight. He acts like a knight, but he really isn't clearly. Right. Um, and, and he sort of tilts at windmills uh, in a way. He, he, he thinks that they're going to class as a quest and, yeah. and he like takes it extremely seriously um, when he first sees them. Almost as though he's never seen students before. <laughs> he's like, "Are we fi- like? Should I fight you guys?" Yeah, like, yeah. But he's been in the castle for I don't I don't know probably centuries. Right. So it's it's just really funny um, reading the chapter, thinking about like, what, who is this guy? What is yeah. he doing? Um, and then obviously, like later on, we you know he becomes important as the replacement for the fat lady. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest character trait that we could see here that would um, that explains why he's the chosen replacement is that he has so much, um, like blustering courage. I don't really know how to describe it. It's like, uh, almost a recklessness, but it's like, it's like based entirely on bravado. Yeah. It seems like probably a lot of other, uh, people in other paintings would not want to take that position after the fat lady is attacked. So he's sort of like, I can do it with no real talent, but he does have a lot of courage. Yeah, yeah, he's got he's got undeserved uh, courage. Yeah, like he's like I will be the defender of this dormitory, yeah. but like he, he, you know, he can't do anything against a like an actual threat. He's a painting. Well, I wonder also if I mean I don't know what she was thinking about any of this, but I wonder if uh, it's also kind of mocking Harry's character in this book for most of the time, where he is sort of. Um, in the same way, I mean, yes, he has, you know, defeated Voldemort, but he has basically accidentally done all of that stuff. He is not very skilled. He's barely, he's just 13 now. And so it's kind of like a silly thing of, I will, you know, save the world against this giant yeah. uh, enemy, you well, know? That's a good point. I never thought about that before. But I wonder if Harry has any self-awareness about that at all. Oh, whether, I'm sure he doesn't. I'm sure he doesn't, yeah. I mean, maybe eventually, um, once Hermione points out his saving people thing. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> not at this point in his life. He he sees Sir Cadogan and goes, wow, that guy's so silly. Right. Um, but really, it's just a, a mirror image of himself in a lot of ways, as you it were just is, saying. It is, yeah. But I think mostly it is comic relief, and there's some comic relief later when he comes back in, um, when the book has gotten even darker, so I think that um, she is trying to insert some of that humor into the chapter. 
So we've been tracking Hermione's character changes throughout the first two books so far, and we see another big shift for her in this one, because one of Hermione's defining character traits up until now is that she, almost to a fault, puts all of her faith in authority figures at the school, Mm -hmm. that all knowledge comes from teachers and Mm -hmm. books. Yes. Um, And so we saw last last uh, book in Chamber of Secrets, when books fail her, she's so distraught. Now in, in this chapter, she's confronted with a teacher, an authority figure on learning, right. who tells her, books are not useful in this course. No. And she, like, loses it. <laughs> she loses it, yes. And so there's... Not that she, like, goes to pieces or anything. Sorry to interrupt. But but just that, you know, she, she can no longer control her almost palpable disdain for the subject matter once she learns that books aren't important anymore. Yes. So there's a few different elements to this. I, first of all, I love snarky Hermione in Divination. It's truly my favorite Hermione, one of my favorites. Um, I think it's very funny because it is so out of character, but also clearly her true thoughts and where she's at. Um, So I like that. But part of it, I think we're going to talk about why um, some wizards are looking down on Divination. But also, what's going on with her schedule right now? So, yeah, so, (laughs) I mean, we know that she's using the time turner to attend multiple classes, right? But um, no one else is supposed to know about this. It's Mm -hmm. supposed to be kept extremely secret. So, you know, you would think they'd be a little more careful about it than actually just writing on her schedule (laughs) that she has three concurrent 9 a.m. classes on a Monday. Um, Because Ron notices that almost immediately when they're at breakfast. He's like, look, you've got three classes (laughs) schedule all at the same time like he's like i know you're good hermione but no one's that good right um and then it comes back later in this chapter because um when they're at lunch after divination hermione says oh my gosh that class was such rubbish compared to my arithmetic class and ron is like wait what you you've been with us all morning right we, we just had divination what are you talking about? We had divination and we had transfiguration. You were there the whole time. Yeah. And now we're at lunch together. You haven't been out of our sight. What's going on? Yeah. So we're already seeing the cracks and Hermione maybe isn't being as careful as she should have been. Or maybe McGonagall should have been more careful about uh, how she sets up this whole, you know, schedule because the secrecy thing obviously isn't quite working right now. Right. Possibly why she's more fed up or... Um, is more impulsive in some ways is because she has already um, been to arithmetic. Maybe she's also already been to her other class as well. We don't really know. I mean, she's been to all of them at once, according to the time turner, but we don't know what her experience is of what order she did them in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So it's possible that divination is maybe the third class she's been to. Um, We were also thinking about the fact that she only gets one lunch because she can't appear at lunch more than one time. Mm -hmm. And so she may be starving because maybe she's had like six hours of class when everyone else has only had three. So she may be a little bit more likely to be fed up than if she were just going to divination and that were her only class for the morning. Yeah, so she might be a little hangry. Yeah, exactly. Right, because we were thinking about this before the podcast and I was wondering, like, you know, do do the same rules about aging and time passing apply to time travelers? Yeah. Like, Like, if you time travel back six times a day for, like, an hour and a half each time or whatever, um, but you still only eat like a couple meals because those are the only times that lunch and dinner are served like you can't have multiple lunches because then people would see that oh there's two of you there right um 
So does, does that mean that you just don't get as much food as you need? Yeah, and I like, wonder how it affects energy level. If it does, if it's kind of like Magic Treehouse style, like nothing oh. has, <laughs> you know, sort of like as if no time has passed when you come back. Or like a Narnia type thing. Yeah, like you just come back and it's the same thing and your body is still in the same place. Um, but I think we can assume, especially due to Hermione's behavior in the rest of the book, that this stress not only of keeping the secret and doing all the work, but also just the amount of time that she is experiencing mm-hmm. um, and adding all these extra hours to her day probably is really affecting her mood and energy level. You know, we can also think about this as like a sleep thing too. Mm-hmm. We'll start to see this later on in the book as well, that Hermione seems very tired all the time. And I think part of that is due to the fact that she can only get, you know, let's say roughly eight or nine hours of sleep a night. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is up for like 20 plus hours a day. Right. So maybe even like 24 hours a day. Yeah. So she's not getting like eight hours of sleep per 24-hour cycle. She's getting it per like 32-hour cycle. Yeah. She's up for like the equivalent of a whole day. Right. And then she gets like a normal night's sleep, if that, because again, she's also doing a crazy amount of homework too. Right. And and for a lot of this homework stuff, she doesn't get to just wind the clock back and keep working. Right. Because it's like there's already one Hermione in the common room. Uh Uh-huh. So uh if we were to wind the clock back and now she's in the library... People might, like, leave the library and go back to the common room and be like, hey, I just saw Hermione in the library. So she can't, yeah. like, there's no way around this. She has That's to true. be, like, only only one Hermione gets to do, like, all of her homework, eat meals, and go to sleep. Um, yes. But the, the other Hermione's can go to class, but, like, you know what I mean? Like, she yeah. only gets to, to do that stuff once. Right. So she only has, like, a very limited amount of time to do all of these things that she needs to do. Which obviously make, takes a toll on her. So definitely. We're definitely going to see her fraying. But but coming back to this first divination lesson, right? So we can maybe say that she's already a little bit on edge yeah. with the, the time thing. Um, but it's more than that. This is like, this is a Hermione who does not respect Professor Trelawney not at all. all. She totally thinks she's a fraud, like right off the bat. So why do you think that is? Well, it's interesting because Ron says that she just doesn't like divination because she isn't good at it. Um, Although I don't know that – we don't know that that's true because she's not putting in any effort. She's just not even, like, deigning that with a response, basically. She's not doing anything there. Um, So I think that, you know, we can talk in a minute about why divination maybe looks down upon. I think that she considers it to be a – lesser form of magic for sure or maybe just guesswork um i think she is much more into the fact that if you are cast a spell and the charm comes out correctly then your thing will happen that you want to happen and if you study hard and you know the things to do then you will be good at it and you can do it um very kind of scientific mathematic situation and divination is a much more you know, woo-woo, and it's very out in the <laughs> air. Um, it's, you have to be more artistic. You have to really think about creatively, like, what could this mean? And there are, you know, clearly thousands of years of research on it and what things might mean, but you won't necessarily know if your predictions come true or mm-hmm. um, it could be interpreted in many ways that a prediction that you make. So it's hard to say, and I don't think that Hermione likes that so i don't know if we can say that she isn't good at it like ron says but i think we can say that it's she does not think it's worth her time yeah and trelawney also tells hermione that she's not going to be good at this 
Like That's in true. the first class, she's like, you don't have what it takes. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to tell you right now, you don't have what it takes. Mm-hmm. Uh and and that's probably a really hard thing for Hermione to hear. Yeah. But she definitely was being disrespectful before that, and that's why Trelawney sort of right. lost her temper. Right. So let's talk about that. So divination. So you were just talking about how it's less scientific, more creative mm-hmm. pursuit of um, magic than many of the other forms of magic that we've seen so far. Um, and it definitely is treated differently by at least McGonagall we've seen. Dumbledore, we will also learn, treats divination kind of differently than he does all the other magical disciplines. So I think there is something to that idea that it seems to be one of the less rational pursuits of magical learning. But I think we have to kind of bring it back and say, like, we're talking about magic. Exactly. I mean, like, we shouldn't be so limited about what we can accomplish with magic. You know, it's not science. There are types of magic like transfiguration which i think mcgonagall would probably say was more scientific if she were using those words yeah because it is you know changing the matter of something into another matter Mm -hmm. and instead of a chemical reaction or whatever you're using a spell um but this seems more magical in a way than using a wand and casting a spell to me because this is if you can make a prediction based on tea leaves and then that comes true, that is magical. That's kind of the definition of something where it's magical. It doesn't have a scientific explanation. Defies explanation or understanding. Right. Uh, and, and it's mystical too, right? Yes. It's, it's got this interesting sort of glow around it where it's ethereal and it's not, you know, it's not easy to understand. Mm-hmm. It's not logical. Um, you know, you can't look in a cup, and if you swirl the tea leaves in a specific way, they will arrange themselves into a shape that you can identify. No. It's like you have to open your mind up to the possibility. Right. And that maybe there is some magic that goes on. We're not really sure. It's not clear. Um, but, you know, like, it's it's more of like look into this crystal ball and then kind of let your imagination play and see what it comes up with. Yeah. And those might be predictions or they might not be. Um, but... You know, a lot of people take issue with this. I think Rowling is trying to draw a parallel to, like, mystics and psychics in our world. Yes. Um, and say, like, look, Trelawney is just, like, one of these hack fraud con men who, you know, go on stage and say, you there, I'm getting a sense that your name starts with an M. Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, yeah, it does. And, and yeah. they go, Mike. And he's like, yeah, my name's Mike. How'd you know that? Yeah, and it's right. just guesswork, really. Right. You know, so she's she is saying that that is like part of Trelawney's brand is that she's sort of manipulating her audience with um, this particular brand of quote unquote psychic guesswork. Um, yes, I think that's that's true. But I also think that kind of diving deeper into what this is saying about people that are using this kind of alternative um, types of spirituality and magic in our own world, you know, we are even just in the idea of Harry Potter, we're much more likely to, you know, even if we don't really believe that it's true, we kind of create in our minds, like, yes, there's a school, they learn things, they go, they do spells, um, but it's still as seeming silly that someone could predict the future in some creative way like that. Mm -hmm. And it's also something that we are, we'll talk about is, you know, the idea of does Trelawney, do her predictions actually come true? And um, it's sort of that idea of even now, like with different types of alternative medicine or things like 
spirituality and psychics that people use today is like, mm-hmm. if it works, doesn't matter how or why. Um, and I think that that's just something interesting to think about here is because we can't necessarily see why these predictions work or make sense. Um, if they do, then it's seen as less um, important. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and, you know, as we'll see, a lot of our characters are very skeptical of divination. Mm-hmm. Even Dumbledore, who definitely seems more open-minded than, say, Professor McGonagall mm-hmm. or Hermione. Um, and at one point, Hermione kind of loses her temper even with Ron, who is saying, like, no, Hermione, the Grimm's a real thing. Like, my great-uncle saw a Grimm and he died, like, a day later. Right. And she was like, well, he probably just died of fright, Ron. <laughs> yeah. Like, he, People you know, are so, like, It's a self-fulfilling it. yeah. prophecy. Um, and she she's, like, a very hardcore skeptic on this. Right. Which is weird because normally with Hermione... I think she is generally skeptical of things that seem weird, but, you know, she has to remember that this is a branch of magic that she knows almost nothing about. And so, you know, why why does she glom onto this idea that it's all a fake so quickly? I think it has a lot to do with Trelawney. Yes. Because I think Hermione takes one look at Trelawney and says, everything about her is fake. It's specifically designed to create this aura of mystery about her, and all of her predictions are very vague and very generalized. With one exception that I do want to touch on. Um, but, you know, she says things like, oh, Neville, you're going to be late next time. Yeah. And then in the next class, I think she says, like, oh, Neville, you're about to break one of the cups right. while you're handing them out. And and it's these things that, like, you know, yes, they're they're kind of cool when they do come true. But also she could have influenced the events by saying exactly. that. Or she could have just said, Looked like, oh, Neville, and- Neville looks, like, really clumsy. Yeah. So I'm going to pick him to pass out cups and then I'm going to tell he, him he's going to drop one. Sort of one. like a hypnotist thing. Like, somebody sees sure. someone who's very... They can tell that they're um, able to be influenced in that way. Yeah. And she's very theatrical, too. She's mm-hmm. very dramatic. Um, you know, her dramatic timing is obviously, like, very crafted to mm-hmm. have a certain effect on the class. I think Hermione sees through all of that. Um, but, you know, one of my grand theories about the Harry Potter universe is that all of Trelawney's predictions, more or less, come true. And I think it's a really fascinating thing about the way the series is written most fantasy series have this thing about prophecy where mm-hmm. it comes true, but not in the way you'd expect. Right. Um, but in this universe, even when they explicitly tell us through many characters like Hermione and Dumbledore and McGonagall, don't listen to Trelawney, she's a fraud. Right. Her predictions come true anyway. All yes. of the things that she says in this chapter when she makes quote unquote predictions are true. And the one that readers always think of when they think, oh, well, that one didn't happen is the Grimm. Well, that one actually is true because it's not actually a Grimm. It's just a black dog. Right. And we know that the black dog is part of Harry's life and is part of this book. And he keeps thinking that it's this death omen that he's heard so much about. But in fact, it is just a black dog. Right. But that doesn't mean that the prediction was wrong. In fact, it was right. It was just her interpretation of it. Right. Um, And there's this other really cool one where she says to Parvati or Lavender, I think Lavender, um, where she says, that thing you're dreading, it will yes. happen on Friday the 16th of October. Um, which also, as an aside, Friday the 16th of October in 1993 was a Saturday. I looked this up. <laughs> um, because Rowling is, for some reason, very bad at getting the days right. Um, but anyway, that is a very specific prediction. Mm-hmm. It's not a general thing like, oh, Neville, it's going to be late next class. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's like a real thing. So right. we're going to be looking for something to happen that day. 
And then when it does, it almost seems to confirm that Trelawney is the real deal. Right. So to back up for one second to what you were saying about the Grimm and how people say that's not true, the Black Dog is hanging around, but that prediction that she makes about Harry's death does come true because Harry does die, just not in this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as you're saying, like, all of her predictions eventually come true, which is, of course, everyone does die, but he dies in this premature way, Uh Um, you know, and then comes back to life, but... We'll see other predictions that she makes, and we can talk about how they come true um, when when she makes them or when we get to them. Yeah, and if you wanted to be really, like, open-minded and creative about the interpretation of her predictions, right, mm-hmm. you could also say Harry becomes master of death when he's 17. True. So the Grimm could be a representation of Harry himself. Yes. Taking yeah. on the persona of master of death. You right. know, maybe there is a connection between those two things. Um, that said, though... Um, My personal feeling on Trelawney is that she is an actual prophet. Yes, I agree. Who is saddled with um, two problems that I think run in her family. First, that no one believes her predictions ever, Mm -hmm. including herself. She never believes her own predictions either. And that's the the second thing is that she has this crazy imposter syndrome. Right. That at the same time, she's full of like – what we would normally call self-confidence. Mm-hmm. It's almost narcissistic. She, like, on the one hand, seems to believe everything that she says is true, mm-hmm. almost like believing her own BS. But on the other hand, she knows deep down that she's a fraud, mm-hmm. and that makes her crazy because right. she's like, well, I'm in, I'm in this position at Hogwarts, but, like, and Dumbledore always tells me that I should stay, but, like, I don't even believe in my own abilities deep right. down. And she's trying to do the fake it till you make it thing, but it's not working for her. Yes. Um, and I looked up her name. Uh, I just ran it through Google because I was curious. So her name, Sybil, is derived from the Latin Sibylla, which was a fortune teller or a prophetess. Um, and basically it was it was the mouthpiece in ancient Rome. It was the mouthpiece of the oracle. So if you were mm-hmm. a Sybil, it meant that you know the oracle spoke through you. Um, and that is how her predictions seem to go right. in, when she makes the, the quote-unquote real predictions, you know? It's like she goes catatonic and then she just starts talking. Um, but unfortunately, you know, she never remembers them. Yes. So she doesn't even, she's not even aware of the fact that she's made what we would call real prophecies. Right. I A couple other things about her that I wanted to mention or about kind of this view of her. Um, one One is that I do think that there is some level of sexism, but sexism about um, sort of more eccentric or emotional women. Um, I think the fact that um, McGonagall also is very disdainful of her, not just because she's very scientific, but because McGonagall herself is extremely tight-laced, non-emotional, almost, you know, non-female in a way that we would consider to be uh traditional female gender roles yeah um and so a couple sides of that one one is that i'm thinking like if we just look at eccentricity and kind of the strangeness of uh characters and professors i think that a lot of people in the hogwarts including dumbledore and hagrid um are very eccentric and strange and have other things going on that people may view as eccentric, but I don't think that they're judging them as harshly as they judge uh, Trelawney. Mm, interesting, yeah. And, I think you're right on about that. And including McGonagall as well. Um, 
Another element of this is that we see Lavender and Parvati get very involved in divination, and they're very um, sort of almost an occult following of Trelawney, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not the smartest when we usually think of them as being relatively not smart, you know, especially when we get to know them later on in the series. They're the more girlish girls, because her- yes. Hermione almost doesn't count to Harry and Ron as girl as a girl. Right, and she's clearly very smart, so they're kind of viewed as, like, they're the dumb girls, and she's a smart girl. Or that they're the more feminine ones. Yeah, and they're into more into boys and crushes and that kind of thing. Um, I think that that's interesting as well, because, you know... What is it about this that draws them to, you know, more closer to divination than maybe other subjects? And also, you know, are we looking down on them because of that? Or are we also looking down on them because of who they are as people, as young girls, women? Same thing as Trelawney. Yeah, and I I do think it colors the reader's interpretation of what divination is as a more feminine pursuit. Right. Um, Because you see the the boys in the class really not taking it that seriously Mm -hmm. for the most part. Um, and it is like Parvati and Lavender, who are the more girly girls that do. Um, and especially later on in the series when like Forenzi starts teaching mm-hmm. part of the class and they're like, oh, we're really into divination now. Yeah. But but like part of it's because like Forenzi is really attractive. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it sort of does um, say to the reader like, oh, this isn't actually like a discipline that's really worth studying. It's it's sort of a joke almost. Right. And another thing I was wondering was, we do see Frenzy later on, you're right. Um, But I was trying to picture kind of the opposite of Trelawney. And if this chapter, if they had taken divination, their first divination class, and it had been maybe a woman, but a very more McGonagall-like woman Mm -hmm. who was saying, okay, and here it is, and we're going to look at the tea leaves, and this is what you see, and was very sort of non-emotional and not making a lot of predictions about people in the class, but just kind of talking about the technique of it. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that would have had a different interpretation from the people in the class. And I wonder if there are uh, seers or uh, practitioners of donation in that are more like that or if they're Mm -hmm. all kind of like this and i wonder if also part of because trelawney has this imposter syndrome is she feels like she has to have all the bells and whistles to make herself seem to herself and to others more legit because if she were just being herself she wouldn't be able to do that yeah i think there's something guru-ish about it Uh right like like a maharishi or something but yeah, can you imagine McGonagall teaching this class? <laughs> no, I, I think it would be very funny in a different way. Uh, it would be to see because McGonagall clearly has so much disdain for the subject, and I think that if you treat it scientifically and seriously and stoically, it doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the thing is that you have to have a Trelawney teaching this course because you know if you don't have someone who's able to really take it and make it into a creative Mm -hmm. pursuit when with all these bells and whistles and fun things, um, it doesn't really seem like anything at all. And, you know, when, when Forenzi is teaching his course later on, I remember reading it and feeling the frustration of the students because he couldn't communicate centaur culture to them. Mm -hmm. And so he was just saying, listen, you know, this is what we do. Right. We, we smoke herbs and then we look at the stars Yeah. and you're not going to get anything your first time and that's okay. Right. Uh, but you know, there aren't bells and whistles attached to that. There's no like him predicting mm-hmm. people's futures. That's true. And he very clearly says like centaur divination isn't about the minutia of daily life. It's about like the, the universe. Fate. Yeah. Uh, and, and so 
you know, there, there isn't anything floofy about it. It's very serious. And you can tell the students are kind of disconnected from that. They want right. the more, like, minutia stuff because that's sort of more relevant to them. Yeah, that's what people, you know, now that want their futures read, they want to know specifics about what's going on. Um, and they want the easier-seeming thing, too. They yeah. want to be reading tea leaves. They don't want to be just staring up at the at sky. stars. When you said, imagine Professor McGonagall teaching it, and that is very funny, but I actually can imagine Dumbledore teaching divination, which is uh-huh. interesting, because I feel like if he were into it, which we know that he d- isn't really, but if he were, um, he is kind of eccentric enough, and I think he could be into something like this, so that may be partially why he's keeping her there. Young Jude Law Dumbledore? <laughs> I definitely see that. Uh, maybe. <laughs> So let's check in on Harry's well-being also because he's being kind of bombarded with a lot of crap right now. Mm -hmm. And I just want to see how you think he's doing. So uh, let's just go through the list. He knows that Sirius Black, a mass murderer, escaped (laughs) from wizard Alcatraz uh, (laughs) just to go after him and kill him. Right. Well, he thinks he knows that. Yeah. Uh, He knows that Dementors have a horrible effect on him Mm -hmm. and they're pretty much everywhere now in his Mm -hmm. life. Uh, and he's been seeing death omens for a couple of months now, um, and can't seem to shake the feeling that something terrible is about to happen to him. And then Trelawney tells him he's going to die. Yeah, a teacher, a teacher whose specialty is predicting the future straight up told him that he was going to die. Right. So... So, uh, I mean, (laughs) seems like he wouldn't be doing very well. Seems like he would be pretty, uh, pretty anxious about all this, or, uh, pretty hopeless about the future, but... I don't think that we fully see that, and I think that kind of comes back to his sort of, I don't know, foolhardiness in a way, because, yeah, he's he's uncomfortable, but I think he's more embarrassed that all this is happening, especially because yeah. he's most embarrassed about the public things like the class and the train, and he feels uneasy about the grim situation, but um, I think that he feels like, well, I can just, I can handle most things. This is one thing that I think a lot of more critically-eyed readers do criticize the series for, is that Harry is um, a character who is maybe worthy of criticism because he is pretty bland. Mm -hmm. Um, He is almost superhuman in his ability to shake off horrifying things happening to him, uh, and it doesn't really leave any psychological scars that we can see. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's worth pointing out. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't necessarily agree 100 percent with the criticisms, but I at least see the point, you know, that that most people, especially teenagers, when they're put in a situation like this, would be pretty traumatized. And Harry is demonstrates a resilience that I have never seen in a 13 year old in real life. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. Although there is kind of a, a level of resilience with people that have had so many traumatic things happen to them by a young age, which Harry has, where um, things are in a way blocked off or keeping keeping those things at bay because, well, the worst, a lot of the worst things have already happened. And so he feels like probably like this is just normal. Bad things are going to happen to me because right. I'm a person that bad things happen to. But you would think that that would leave its own set of psychological scars. Oh, for sure. Like he'd be afraid of commitment or intimacy or friendships uh he would be afraid of abuse from superior you know uh father figures or mother figures or whomever because that's all he's really known uh but instead he's pretty well adjusted that's true (laughs) yeah all right so before we um leave off for the day i want to check in on hagrid and the care of magical creatures lesson yes 
So the, the first question I thought about here was, should Hagrid be allowed to teach? And I'm asking this in a very open-minded way because, of course, we love Hagrid. Um, but it comes up more than once during the series. That's right. Um, and so what do we think just based on this chapter, just what we know, um, or what we know up to this point? So Hagrid is not a qualified wizard, as we know, you know, through no fault of his own, um, really, but he did not graduate school. He also, um, does not have whatever professor credentials you need to be able to teach. Apparently you don't need any. I guess you don't need any, but, um... I think other people have had some sort of (laughs) career before that that's not um, just gatekeeper. And he is, though, very knowledgeable about magical creatures. And so maybe that's all that we need. But do we think that he is fit to teach at this point? I think he is and he isn't. He obviously has some pretty big flaws. Um, But they're not the ones that you would think of if you didn't know Hagrid. Like, if you didn't know him, you'd think, oh, well, he's part giant so he's bloodthirsty he's really way into these dangerous creatures um but i don't think that's the problem actually i think the problem is that he um thinks too highly of his students Mm. and and assumes that they can handle more than they can handle right that's Um, true that said it's really great having teachers like that sometimes because they can push you to to greater heights than you could have pushed yourself Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. if you were given your own agency but in this case what we see happening is Malfoy really wasn't mature enough to handle hippogriffs. Right. It was Malfoy's fault. Don't get me wrong. For sure. That he was injured. Um, but he didn't have the emotional maturity to stop his blabbermouth and keep himself from insulting a dangerous creature. Right. Um, so maybe Hagrid should have imposed some sort of safety measures mm-hmm. um, to keep the class from just descending into chaos in case something went wrong because hippogriffs are pretty dangerous it's true and if we just think about 13 year olds even wizard and widgets 13 year olds you know they're not going to be the best at controlling their impulses and they're not going to be the best at maybe knowing what to do if a crisis is imminent like we see in this yeah yeah so i think you had an interesting thing here um about how you know how hippogriffs need to be treated with respect and how that can relate to you know, the treatment of other potentially violent creatures in this book? Yeah, so, I mean, I was thinking about just this idea that you have to um, bow and wait for permission to approach Mm -hmm. and definitely to ride the hippogriff. And I think that um, it's just the idea of showing respect to something that is so dangerous and that a lot of people may think are violent. And we see later that other people do think that they're violent and dangerous. Um, and like with a lot of uh, potentially violent animals or people, you if you're treating them with respect, they will not be violent. And um, we see this, I think, is kind of a metaphor for Sirius um, in a way. Um, we hmm. see the way that he has been treated and the things that he's gone through um, have made it so that he kind of has turned himself into this villain. I also think that, especially for Lupin, and um, who becomes one of, I think, the most beloved characters in the series, but we know that he can turn into this werewolf, and it's through no fault of his own. Um, mm. So I think it's an idea about um, just treating those people slash animals with respect. Um, also, the idea that we learn in this chapter about animagi and how people can be animals and sort of like you never know who is a person possibly that could be something that we learn from this chapter as well which is that 
um, pe- people can turn into animals. So you may see an animal and it could be more intelligent than you think, i.e. scabbers as well. Not that scabbers or wormtail needs to be treated with respect, but it's something that um, we think, oh, scabbers is just a rat. Scabbers is freaking out, causing everyone a lot of problems. Ron has to take care mm-hmm. of him. Um but Scabbers is actually a person and is much more intelligent than we think. So to wrap up, I wanted to sort of bring us back around to the start of the chapter. We didn't really talk about this, but Malfoy starts out this chapter mocking Harry for going to pieces on the train. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fred and George tell Harry that actually when the Dementor was in their compartment, Malfoy ran in and nearly wet himself because he was so scared. Mm-hmm. So Malfoy is definitely like you know, dishing it, but he can't really take it here, especially when we see him getting attacked by the hippogriff, which was his own fault. Right. Uh, and he completely goes to pieces in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that says a lot about Malfoy's character, not just um, in his relationship with Harry in this book, but um, throughout time, basically, we see that he kind of can't handle it when things get too intense um, with his whole situation in the sixth book. And then even at the end of the seventh book, when Harry has to save him, um, Mm -hmm. you know, he really cannot be brave and kind of have those Gryffindor type qualities. He's ambitious, but he has nothing behind it. And that's why he's a really bad Slytherin. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Talons and Tea Leaves. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we discussed today, especially the way the subject of divination is presented here, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcast. Stay tuned for next time when we face our greatest fears in Chapter 7, The Bogart in the Wardrobe. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.